Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get into this episode with Dr. Jesse Cook, the trumpet teacher at University of Central Florida, I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. One of my guilty pleasures in life is diving down endless rabbit holes on YouTube for all kinds of educational content. You can find so much information for any kind of topic you're looking for, including music education resources. Unfortunately, not every place on YouTube is full of great information, and that's actually one of my favorite things about Houghton Horns, and what raised my awareness of them way before they ever became a sponsor for this podcast is their YouTube channel. They have so many high-quality recordings and tutorial-type videos for players to learn from. They've recently released their 2022 TMEA uh, tutorial videos, so make sure you check those out if you haven't seen them. Uh, and it's just clear to me that supporting Houghton Horns, you're also supporting the creation of high-level music education content for so many students to benefit from. From now until December 4th, you can use the code RECIPE at checkout to get 10% off of the Recipe for Success a Horn Education book that Karen Houghton and Janet and I wrote together. Uh, we interviewed them on the podcast a few episodes ago, so you can listen to that for more information. I highly recommend you check that out if you are interested in uh, having that kind of resource available for you to learn from. So at Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm excited. Uh, I'm here with Jesse Cook, the trumpet teacher at uh, University of Central Florida. Jesse is subbing with us this week in the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, and uh, he and I have just been talking trumpet for a few days and different things that uh, I thought would just make a really great episode, let alone getting to know him. And so he has graciously agreed to uh, donate some of his time today. Uh, to kind of talk to us about himself and uh, some stuff related to performance anxiety and whatever else happens. So uh, before we get started, Jesse, I appreciate you giving me some of your time and being willing to chat. I'm flattered that you asked me to uh, join you. I've been a longtime listener. Yeah, this is cool for me. Uh, Jesse's been super supportive of uh, the work I've been doing with the gold method and has given me opportunities to do some classes and just try to share my ideas in hopes that it uh, it helps, so I'm I'm glad to be able to flip it around and to be able to learn from him uh, and kind of just put the spotlight on you. So let's start with your backstory, kind of where you got started with the trumpet, and uh, just kind of take us through your education and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my folks tell me at a very young age that I saw the Madison Scouts Drum and Bugle Corps. Uh, I don't remember saying this, so it was earlier than five. Um, and I said, Daddy, I want to do that. I wanted to play the trumpet 
uh, which was a soprano bugle. I didn't know that, mm-hmm. but uh, from as early as I remember, uh, my parents were both music educators. They're both retired now after a long career in music education. So I kind of grew up in a band room. And uh, I took to the trumpet right away. Um, started in the summer before fifth grade. I had done, you know, piano lessons and I was singing in youth choirs and things like that. Um, and I just really, really enjoyed doing it. Um, didn't start practicing really hard though until about eighth grade when I joined the Capital Sound Drum Bugle Corps which is a local core in Madison. In eighth grade, huh? Eighth grade. Wow. I did that for three years. Uh, and then I switched to the Scouts when I was 16 and a half. And I did that for five years. It's a very, very long time. Um, you know, and at 16, I was doing exactly what I said I wanted to do at three or four or whatever it <laughs> you was. You reached your life goal, right, right. Well, and you know, I mean, it, it does kind of fit into the long-term uh, story here uh, in that, yeah, I thought I was on top of the world. I was I was the, uh, the big fish, or so I thought. Yeah. Um, I look back at those videos now, and I certainly had fun, and I learned a ton, uh, and I made some very dear lifelong friends. Um, I learned a lot about music and I learned a lot about working in a group. I learned a lot about uh, being kind to people and how to say things and maybe more importantly, how not to say things that might be hard to say. (laughs) Um, But I look back at those videos from the late 90s and early 2000s as a trumpet teacher now and I'm like, ouch, 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 ouch. my dad was a trombone player, still is a trombone player. Um, I grew up cutting my teeth on drum corps, Chicago, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, Genesis, Phil Collins, Power of Power. I mean, so the sound concept in my head, and oh, and Maynard Ferguson. Of course. I, there's a lot of Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> so as a sophomore in high school, my dad said, hey, check this out. And he handed me a recording of Kenton 76. So I decided that I was going to learn that. So I learned the whole album by ear and I could play it. Of course, I'd play it and then not be able to play for five days. And of course, it probably didn't sound as good in front of the horn as I thought it did behind the horn. Sure, sure. I was playing, you know, all these ridiculous high notes completely the wrong way. Yeah. Um, but I could do it. And so I showed up to Scouts and uh, I was one of the main high note soloists pretty early in my tenure there. Uh, and it led to... Three embouchure changes from 18 to 30 and almost quitting twice. Um, I tell my students now, you guys are way better than I was at your age, and they don't believe me, but it's absolutely true. Uh, they have such strong fundamentals, uh, much better. They have, they've gotten, and I'm not taking credit for this, but just their band programs that they come in to college with have grounded them in such strong fundamentals much better than I was in growing up in rural Wisconsin, which is nobody's fault. It's just 
the training in the Orlando area is much more comprehensive in A to B to C rather than just hear it, play it, which has its place, but... Yeah, so when you were doing this stuff with the scouts and listening to all of this, did you have a teacher at, this, at that time or nope. were you kind of, you're just sort of self-taught, so this is, you kind of just guided yourself into, this is the thing I'm most interested in, I'm just going to kind of figure it out, I suppose. That's right, yeah. that's right. Um, and then when I went to college, my first trumpet teacher in college uh, said, you need an embouchure change. And I said, no, I don't, come on, look at what I've been able to do. And I didn't want to listen, I was, you know, Mr. Bighead. And... Uh, but I would sound great one day and then terrible for five, and I had no idea why or how. There was no reliability, and it was a terrible way to live. And furthermore, I had invested my identity, my value as a person, in my ability to perform. And so when that ability to perform came crashing down, really, really rough psychological time ensued. Um, and I learned a very hard lesson that if you are... I learned it at about 20, um, and it, it resulted in a, a long-term change in how I live my life. Um, but if you are valuing your ability to perform, and that is your functional reason for living and provides your humanity with value, one of two things are going to happen, and neither of them are good. One of them is going to be that you are going to be miserable because 99% of the time you're not going to play as well as you could have. Even if other people are complimentary, there is always more. Yeah, yeah. Or worse, you actually max it out and then you're a jerk because when you achieve that impossible goal, which can happen in an optimum performance, doesn't happen often, but an optimum performance does happen. Mountain peak performances do happen. Um, you judge everybody else that can't or don't do what you just did as somehow lesser than, and uh, that's even worse. At least I did, and I have found that in the people I have taught in over the many years that have struggled with that concept, that that has been the case. It might be a part of human nature. Yeah, I was uh, talking to a, a client of mine who was struggling with this kind of thing, and he was saying there's, you know, levels of satisfaction that he is hoping to achieve, and he just wants to affect people's lives in a positive way. And I was like, well, like, I bet you've already done that. You know, I bet you've already done that for, you know, a few people. So it's clear that there's something in your head that you need to achieve for yourself before you feel like that's there. And they were saying, yeah, like this, it's kind of a, a thing. Like, I feel like I need to get to this particular level, but because I can't do it on a regular basis, it just feels like it's, you know, you basically are just miserable. You can't, you feel like you're never living up to some sort of potential that you feel like you should be able to do for whatever reason, right? Whether it's time or whether it's whatever, but for some reason you can't do it. And I think it's something I've struggled with. Probably everybody to some degree will struggle with this at some point. So like, what are, what do you do when, when you come across people that struggle with this? How do you try to encourage them? Well, I, I, I tell them that the trumpet is a very, very bad deity because that's what you're making it. Achievement, power that you get from performing well is, um, it's like living your life on a slip and slide. You might achieve balance, rarely, 
but it's going to be downhill for you. And the worst part is you're going to take the people that are close with down close to you down with you. Um, when I discovered this, it just it absolutely wrecked me. What I had, how I had treated family and friends that were very close to me, um, in, you know, including my parents, my sisters, friends, current friends, you know, and it's not like some magic potion that you take. At, at least for me, that I took at 20 years old, that it just all of a sudden I was 100% cured. It, it's it's a it's a it's a in our culture, it is a very seductive deity to chase and and a, and a deadly one. And it doesn't even have to things I've learned in the years since. Uh, it doesn't even have to be trumpet. I thought, oh, this is just uniquely trumpet at first. No, 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 no. <laughs> it could be making money. It could be athletic performance. Uh, it could be being a making movies, singing, stockbroking, politicians, bankers, lawyers. I mean, whatever you choose to do, there, there, there can be this pull of, I want this to be my identity, and it's poison. So I figured that out at twenty, um, and it involved, or at least I began the process, the long process of figuring that out at twenty. It involved moving to Chicago. And uh, all of a sudden, I was in a big city for the first time in my life, not on a farm in rural Wisconsin or a very small town at any rate. I was no longer a big fish in a small pond. I realized that I sucked. <laughs> Here's the Chicago Symphony. They're amazing. And even though nobody said it to me like this, I was like, oh, I am not amazing. Yeah, what do I do now? Yeah, yeah, what do I do now? Uh so there was no functional reason to continue to play the trumpet and I struggled with that for a while and and um realized that if I wasn't getting my kicks out of being better than someone else, why do I do this? And you know, ultimately it came back to I I really do love the beautiful sounds you can make on the instrument. It took me a while to discover that. So uh, through my undergraduate, I, I, I could play great sometimes, and then, you know, sometimes not. Um, then I was a, uh, we had, my, my wife, Dorea, and I, we had some credit card debt graduating college, which is, you know. So I took a job as a band director in the south side of Chicago at 95th in Michigan. Uh, I was beginning band for seniors and juniors. Whole new world inner city schools. I had no idea what that was like. It was a learning experience. Um, I was a band director for two years and um, the best, I, I was good at it. I mean, I grew up in a band room and I had done my job well, but it, the, the job stressed me out. So um, I, there we go. yeah, is that better? Yeah, Sorry. It's a little okay. Is it too low? Right. That's perfect. Okay. Do you need me to go back and? No, no, I'll fix okay. it. All right, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. So I was a band director, and um, I I was pretty good at it, uh, but it exhausted me, and it, it, I found not as much meaning in and as I did in playing and teaching the trumpet in particular. Um, and the best part of my week was always Friday night. I'd get home and I'd practice for three hours. Yeah. And then my wife and I'd watch a movie. We. Go to bed. Saturday was fun. We'd go out and do something fun. And then Sunday, I was all stressed out going back to Monday. Now, I know plenty of awesome band directors 
that they're stressed out about their job, but it recharges them. And, and for me, that was not the case. And so I realized, you know, my wife actually made me quit. Um, so we took a risk and I became a uh, private lesson teacher at District 211 in the Northwest Burbs of Chicago for a year. Re-auditioned for the school that I went to undergrad in and I didn't get back in. They didn't want me. Ouch. You auditioned for grad school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also auditioned for Northwestern and um, Barbara Butler at the time there, who's an amazing teacher, of course, she said, you're just not ready for something like this. She was absolutely right, but it was devastating. Um, so I took a year teaching at District 211, about 30 students a week privately. Um, didn't make much money, but um, practiced about four or five hours a day for that year. I was 24 at this point. Then auditioned at several master's schools and ended up going to the University of Texas to study with Ray Sasaki. And uh, Ray was amazing, amazing pedagogue. I needed to learn how to play the trumpet from a very young age, but I had my ear and my head were always well in front of, and my sound concept were well in front of what my mouth could handle. I didn't have the musculature. I didn't have the agility, um, which caused some significant trauma for me because I could hear how I should sound. I just couldn't do it. Uh, and Ray was an amazing, is an amazing pedagogue. And, and just as importantly for me, that was, I was, you know, overcharged, over intense from my time in Chicago and in drum corps that was so up and down. Um, he was a very chill person. There is many times he just, I come in for a lesson and I'd be all jazzed up about, you know, something he'd say, Jesse, knock it off. That's dumb. <laughs> and I'd say, what? And he said, do you, do you look at the mental knots you're putting yourself in? Do you like playing the trumpet? Yeah. Oh, well then why don't you sit down and let's just play some trumpet and become one step better than we were yesterday. And I, it took me a while to understand the wisdom in that. Yeah. Um, and so I did my master's uh, and it ended up, uh, doing my DMA at UT Austin, I wanted to be a symphony player uh, for years, uh, you know, going back to my early 20s. And um, Ray said, well, you're not ready to win an audition yet. I agreed. I wasn't after my master's. He said, why don't you come back and get a DMA? I'll pay you $12,000 a year. You'll get your tuition wiped out and you'll get medical benefits and you can keep taking auditions. I'm like, Okay. That sounds like a decent deal. So I took the TA at UT Austin and my wife was a TA in the voice area as well. And we lived in Austin and uh, I drove every other week for three years to Houston to study with Mark Hughes. I would drive out on a Friday. I'd listen to the HSO on a Friday night, stay at a buddy's house, crash on his couch take a two and a half hour long lesson on a Saturday morning. I did that every other week for three years, all year. It's 180 miles one way. Um, because Ray, he, he didn't do much orchestra. He just, it wasn't his thing. He didn't yeah. enjoy it. Amazing trumpet player, but that wasn't his thing. And I knew I needed to at least stay in touch with that world if I wanted to um, get back into it. You know, and I started advancing in auditions, uh, took several, was pretty successful. I was on the HSO sub list, um, 
you know, played with a couple of other orchestras, uh, did well in the New World audition. Um, you know, couple couple summer festivals. I mean, I was doing okay. I was a little older than the people I was playing with. Yeah, I was just I was about to okay. ask. I was just about to ask, like, how old would you have been around this time here? Twenty nine. Okay, a little older. Yeah. Um, and you know, a funny story. I did Round Top, and I don't know. We'll see if you keep this, but I did Round Top one. Uh, I think two thousand eleven, and there was a second violinist. She might have been 19. I mean, like, there's 32 violins in the orchestra. So she was barely a collegiate student. And I'm sitting there after a concert. And, you know, it was a good concert. I'd played well around the pool at Round Top. We were, you know, having fun. She looked at me. She said, what does it feel like to be so old? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, like, I was... 29, maybe 30 at the time. Yeah. I mean, there would have been, yeah. She yeah. was 19. That's, it reminds me of my time at, uh, at NRO. Uh, we went there. We were just talking about my friend Jeff Lewandowski. And Jeff, he's like, I think he's like five years older than I am, maybe. Yeah. So I was about, I think I was 22 when I went to that festival. Yeah. So Jeff would have been like 27 or 28, yeah. somewhere around there. And yeah, I just, I gave him so much crap for being so much older. And like now I'm five years older than yeah. what I, what he was when I was giving him so much crap about being old. Yeah. We joke about that now. Yeah. It's not, it's not the, uh, the hare that wins the race. It's the tortoise. And, you know, it, at the time it offended me deeply because I was insecure about that because I thought at a young age that I was on the fast track to greatness, quote unquote, whatever the heck that is. Yeah. And uh, here is this little punk <laughs> telling me that uh, I was old and a has-been and washed up in so many words. Um, you know, um, so I, I did, I did uh, a couple festivals and got on some sub lists and I was doing the thing and I was on my way. Uh, and a funny thing happened on the way to the concert hall just on the audition life is that I decided that if I can help a young, stubborn, less wise Jesse Cook jump over a couple holes that the real Jesse Cook fell into, that's a life well lived. And I, I started finding out that the students I was teaching as a TA at the University of Texas at Austin, I was looking forward to working with them. I mean, it's crazy. I remember taking the Houston Symphony sublist audition. I mean, like Mark was like, you need to take this audition because I was in the middle of dissertating and I just wasn't practicing that much. And I walked out, ran the list. Mark's like, you got it. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, sweet. And then, I, but I was still more excited about going back and helping this yeah. student. And, you know, that was, it was like a, it was a ding, ding, ding. Hey, check engine. What's going on here? You might want to chart a course that's different. Um, and it was the right call. Um, I love playing in orchestras. Love it. But the beautiful thing about my job is that I can take it whatever direction I want. I have a trumpet sextet, the Palisade Trumpet Collective. Um, it's a lot of fun. The guys inspire me on a regular basis. Amazing players and really good people. Um, playing faculty brass quintets, 
come out and sub here or other places, play solo recitals, do a chamber concert. As long as I'm doing something, the university's happy. Yeah. It doesn't need to look a specific way. So I really have a blank check to, um, you know, I could write a pedagogy text if I felt I was up to it. I'm not sure I am, but you know, something like that, uh, as long as I'm doing something. So I, I can kind of take my career whatever way I want. And then I have the beautiful aspect that I can do this thing called shut my office door. And I get to play the trumpet and teach young students how to play the trumpet and deal with life in a, in a setting that is highly personal on a regular basis. And that, that is, uh, maybe it's because I grew up in a band room and I saw excellent educators doing their thing for so long, but it, to me, it's like, it's like breathing. I just, I, I really thrive on it. And then I get to go and do fun things, but then starting on Monday, I go back and right back at it. Yeah. One of the interesting things about what you just described, and I'd love your thoughts on it is this, like you didn't, sometimes we try to plan our lives, you know? We try to like say, these are the things I want to do. Like what you described about saying, well, I want to be an orchestra player, so I got to pursue this. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with sort of making a decision that's like, this is what I would like to pursue. But what you're describing about teaching and looking forward to that and that being sort of a clue that you should pursue this, or maybe this is even what you should be doing, is this idea that it sort of just came about through doing things. You mm -hmm. know, you weren't like, I have to decide right now before I pursue anything. You're just like, I'm just going to get a plethora of experiences and and try to throw my hat in, in these different places. And one of them seemed to draw you in more than the other ones, but you do enjoy all the other ones. So again, you have now a career where you can do this. And I think I've struggled with this, you know, being like, I want to be in an orchestra and that's it. Like that's the yeah. thing. And I sacrificed, you know, a lot. We'll put it that way. We can get yep. into that later if we want, but I sacrificed a lot to pursue that. And now I'm like, I'm trying to ask like, do, is that necessary? Do we have to sacrifice everything for the pursuit of this one goal? Or can we just open ourselves to experiences, kind of point ourselves in one direction of like, I would like to pursue this goal, but just be open to like, maybe I'll get pulled in a different direction and that's okay. Do you have any thoughts on, on, oh, on expanding upon that? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you don't go through life from A to Z. It's not a straight line. We don't chart straight lines. We're humans. Human beings from the neck up are the smartest creatures in the, in the entire, all of creation. From the neck down, we are stupid, stupid, stupid. A cat is so much more kine uh, intelligent than us. Their, their kinesiology is so much better, for example, right? Mm. We, we go from A to B to M, back to double A to C <laughs> to back to A, B, F, right? I mean, we're not straight lines. Uh, that's not how humans work. And I think that there is a beauty that a lot of non-type A people have in their life, which I am absolutely a type A person. I am a very driven person um, to my own detriment a lot of times. Um, but there's a beauty in a non-type A uh, personality that, you know, it's cool, man. We're going to do this and it's going to be awesome. We're going to hit it hard. We're going to go home. We'll hit it hard tomorrow. That's what Ray was like. Uh, and it was just beautiful to see. Um, I think if you lock yourself, um, a plural you, uh, just 
anyone. You lock yourself into, I will do this, and then I will do this, and I will do this, and then I will do this. You might achieve it, but you might find at the end of that that what you thought of as paradise is closer to a prison. And um, there is a lot of beauty in accepting the fact that you are a human and you don't have to be a robot. We're not built to be robots. Yeah, well, I think some of the struggle too is not... I think sort of the struggle is this idea we have a perception that our lives or other people's lives do go in straight lines. And then, so if we just want to take it, so there's basically two different levels of comparison that I think people struggle with, myself included, is number one, comparison with others, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that everybody else is doing these things that I would like to be able to do, and it looks like it's so much easier for them, and I'm struggling, and maybe that means that I shouldn't be doing this thing because look how much better they are than I am. Right. And then I think sort of the more subversive and I think more destructive version of that is you have you in your head have charted out what your life should have looked like, but your life doesn't look that way for whatever reason. And so you're saying, I'm basically behind where I should be. Mm. And like, to me, the word should is one of the worst words in the English language. It's such a comparative thing. Like that's saying that there is some sort of optimal version of things (laughs) and that it's not happening. And so I think that's one of the big struggles with this is like sort of the acceptance that there is no, it's not even just that there's a, I think actually life is a straight line. It's just not what we imagine it's going to be. Like there only is the path that's happened, right? Right. And so like we frame it as life's not a straight line and it has all these twists and turns and I think to me, it's just like, you know, some of us have to, like, I, I've gone way and way down certain directions that seem like they were like, well, this is actually a waste of my time, right? Like, maybe I didn't need to, like, go way down and learn about all these spreadsheets and or all of, read all these different books or whatever, right? Like, but you just never know when something will become relevant to you at what time. So it's essentially feeling your way through life seems to be one of the best ways to me to be like, oh, I didn't actually know I was going to need that information and it unlocked this door like one year later that I didn't even know was going to be a possibility. You know, does that make sense? Or 10 years later. Right, right. I mean, a couple thoughts there. One, comparison is a thief of joy, period. Whether it's with others or yourself. Stop it. Like, stop it. Like, sometimes to my students, I'll, I I have a, I have a, uh, faux impressionist painting on my on my wall in my studio of uh chris farley in a van fishing down by the river (laughs) and the joke there is students so often catastrophize well a to b to c and then all of a sudden it's literally the end of the world scenario and so i'll take them down that path like okay so you mess up your lip slurs then what well then i'll get a bad lesson grade okay you get a bad lesson grade then what well i guess i get a bad grade in my semester Okay, you get a bad grade in your semester. Well, I guess I failed trumpet. Okay, you failed trumpet. What's next? Well, I suppose I could get put on academic probation. Okay, so you get put on academic probation. What's next? I suppose I could get kicked out of the school. Okay, you got kicked out of the school. What's next? And like, I, I'm going to end up smoking doobies. Down in a van by the river. <laughs> like that's the inevitable that's last the, That's one. where they're going, yeah, right? Yeah. And they just don't know it. And so when I make them say that out loud, they realize, all right, it's just a lip slur. 
pack it up. We'll hit it hard tomorrow. And and maybe that means they do need to work harder. That that often is, but it's it's not uh, an indictment on their character. It's comparing yourself to other people and catastrophizing as a result is is poison. I, I mean, geez, this week is a perfect example. I mean, look at the work you're doing. It's an amazing. It's amazing work. You're playing great in the orchestra. The orchestra sounds fantastic. You're doing amazing things with this podcast and the Gold Method app that have helped me, that have helped my students. It's it's impressive, but you're still having to work really hard. And the same as, you know, some of my friends and colleagues in military bands, they've said to me, the work you're doing is just so amazing. I envy you. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're playing... You're getting to play at the Arlington National Cemetery. What an honor. Look at, the, look at the amazing musicians you get to play with in Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter where you're at. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. So stop it. Mm-hmm. Walk the path. And then the second thing is, you know, something my dad said to me years and years ago. He said, you're shooting yourself. It's gross. Stop <laughs> shooting all over yourself. <laughs> and, pretty good. and I said, what do, what do you mean, dad? That word, you yeah. keep using this word, should. What, really, what I was doing is guilting myself, like spiking myself with guilt that I wasn't as great, quote unquote, as I thought I should be at that particular moment. Which is, when you think about it psychologically, it's really kind of gross um, and sad. And so, I, I mean, as a teacher, it's one of those things that I think I have the privilege to say to my students, you know, I'm qualified and I'm prepared. Be qualified, be prepared. Work hard, but never forget the fact that you're human. Yeah, the way I've started to think about it is, at least if you wanna you know, reference kind of, I appreciate those comments you said uh, about me and the work that I'm doing, cause I am working hard. You know? Yeah, you are. And the thing is, is I'm not, I mean, I'm working hard for others, I'm working hard cause I enjoy it, but above all, I'm working hard because, and I'm trying to do good work because that's just, that's just like how I want my, I want to live my life, right? Like if I'm going to engage in something, I want to do the best work I can because that's just how I do work or that's how I want like to my things to orient themselves toward, you know? If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it mm. and I'm going to go for it and we'll see what we learn. And that's one of the, that's one of the things I've learned the most. And I would love actually for you, if you want to sort of expand upon some of the struggles you had in these different amateur changes and these different sort of stages you've grown in with your trumpet playing career, this idea that there's going to be a lot of falling down and we need, I mean, we hear this all, all the time that failure is necessary for growth, right? We hear this all the time. It's just like when it's happening to us, we don't want to believe that. We will say, well, the failure means that it's evidence that I'm not supposed to be doing it. Right. But I mean, there's so much struggle that has been involved with what I've been doing. It's like the majority of my time is spent thinking about how do I explain this in a way that other people can understand it? And it's like, wow, this is way harder than I thought it would be to, to take this gold method stuff and say, Here's what it is. In my head, it makes perfect sense. But there's been so much struggle surrounding how do I get other people to understand what it is, right? And so that's just a struggle I've gone through that has taken me over over a year of thinking about it to become slightly better at, right? So this is referring back to a, a trumpet career or an instrumental career. It's the same kind of deal. 
It's like just because we are struggling or we failed in some capacity isn't evidence that we shouldn't be doing it. It's evidence that there's something we don't understand that we need to learn and that the process of failing taught us that there's more for us to learn. And so I'm curious if you want to take us on some of the struggles you've had in your career and kind of how how you kept going, mm. because I know that you have had a lot of like, I got to make sure I like you already referenced it, right? You kind of found that you did love doing it and love making beautiful sounds. But if you kind of want to go maybe a level deeper and yeah, explain how well, that keeps you, how that keeps your you grounded is really what I'm sort of after. Th there were there were three points that I almost quit. One was um, right after my undergrad when I didn't get back into Roosevelt as a master's student. I didn't get back into Roosevelt as a master's student. That was one, right? The other, and the next one was at 27. Um, I took an audition to play in the Texas Music Festival, and I got in, which was my first big success. I mean, that's a good music festival. It's not Tanglewood, but it's a good music festival. And I found out afterwards that the only reason I got in was that I could play all the high notes in symphonic dances, uh, which, I mean, I've always been able to do that. It's... Um, because of all your time when you were younger. Yeah, you for know? a classical player, I, I mean, I, I guess I can play high notes. I, I don't know if that's a pat on the back or a eye roll or somewhere in between. I, I don't know. Um, but that's why I got in, because they needed a classical player who could handle the third and fourth parts on the other pieces and not play out of tune, but still could play double Gs and shake on a high F and mm -hmm. all that nutso stuff. Yeah, yeah. In the cool so um, I took a lesson with Mark Hughes and Mark said, you know, I was I, my first lesson with him in that summer. And, and we spent the entire time doing a G to a C, second line G down to a C. And he was trying to get me to use my air effectively when I was overblowing, playing with using way too much air, um, blowing too hard, and the sound had no resonance. And, um, I, I said, Mark, I, I don't understand why I'm not advancing. And he was brutal. He just said, Jesse, your sound is not a quality sound. And unless you fix it, you will never win a job. I had spent tens of thousands of dollars in five years of my life to get to that point. I went home and I cried for a long time. Thought about quitting right then talked to my wife and she said, nope, you said you're going to hang it through for your doctorate. You need to do that. So I was the TA at UT Austin at 27 years old. I didn't make the wind ensemble that next fall. I started, I started with Mark. My, my, my response to Mark was, okay, so this is a problem. Help me fix it. Yeah. You tell me what to do. So I listened to Phil Smith's entire solo discography, all of it on repeat on my iPod. Yeah, dating yourself there. Yeah. Uh, I had it on shuffle. That's what it was on all the time. It was on when I worked out. I'd go on a run, when I lifted weights. It was on when I was, you know, making lunches for the day, whatever. Uh, driving. Uh, it was on the speakers in the car. 
I ended up memorizing his entire contest solos for young trumpet players, the entire thing. I, I could still play probably the entire album pretty close to memorized. And that's not a boast. It's just that I spent six months listening to that album. Yeah. And at the end of it, I had gone through an embouchure change. I just didn't know it. Mm. Um, and uh, the, of course, the way that I used my air was wildly different. And I started to play in tune. Because when you're playing with Phil Smith, uh, I, I would put in headphones and I would steal Phil Smith Phil Smith's sound. And I would play and not sound anything like him, but what I was hearing was him. But I would get the physical act of me playing while that was happening. And then eventually, I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I don't sound anything as close to as good as what he has in his life, but I, it's a heck of a lot closer than it used to be. Um, and then the, the last time uh, I went through an embouchure change at 31, um, it was just, uh, I was cutting myself just a little bit. Um, I have a, a particular tooth that is a little bit of a protrusion. Um, and it, it was a little bit of cutting. And so I ended up moving just a touch. Um, and it was frustrating, but the, around that time I was an adjunct at a school in Oklahoma and, um, I learned how difficult being an adjunct is. It, it's very akin to being a freelancer, um, except um, with freelancing, you're not expected to do a whole bunch of stuff that's unpaid. You show up, you play the gig, you go home, you get your check. Um, in adjuncting, in order to do a good job, oftentimes, especially if you're someone who's trying to make a career out of being an academic, this was after my DMA, mm -hmm. There are extra things you need to do, um, recruiting and usually not committee assignments, but traveling, um, helping students with stuff outside their lessons, showing up to their concerts. These are not things that all adjuncts do, but sometimes, especially in rural areas, they will expect you to do them, the school administration. And I went through a real rocky time with that and uh, it was, yeah, I mean... Not something that I would like to repeat, but I ended up putting an 18-month clock even after my DMA saying, if I don't have a livable wage that can support a family 18 months from now, I'm going to sell my horns and I'm, I'm done. So yeah, there were a couple times that I literally almost gave up. Um, now, I don't regret it and I don't regret the pain because I learned a ton in those times of struggle and failure. But it was it was really yeah it was hard. Um, yeah, I think it's so important to hear stories like this because you're obviously, you know, you worked through it. You, you kept doing it. Obviously, I'm imagining within that 18 months you found your way to a livable wage because you didn't quit. That's right. Yeah. So, and then now you know you have a great job at UCF and you got great students and I'm sure not you know just like any working environment. Not everything is 100% perfect all the time, you know? So it's this idea that, like, you are you seem to be very thankful for the opportunities that you have, but it's also, like, I imagine you appreciate them differently because of all of the struggle that you sort of had to go through to get to this point where you feel competent. What I, I forget what you – you've said it to me a bunch of times. I can't believe I can't remember it, but I'm prepared. I'm qualified, yeah. I'm prepared, and I'm human. Yeah, you seem to really uh, exude that. And the time that I spent with you at your school, working with your students, it's like 
you're able to just kind of step into that and have that confidence. I, I guess the beauty um, of all the struggle, my identity does not come from the trumpet. My identity does not come from what my students do. And if someone is a jerk to me or awful to me, that says more about them than it does about me. And I am not going to take that on myself. Um, uh, there have been times in my career where I have been psychologically damaged by instructors, um, mostly by myself, but by instructors. And that has helped me, I think, to be a much more mature performer in the long run and a much more mature educator in person. Of course, I want people to like my playing. I want you to like my playing. I want other people to like my playing. But if they don't, fine. I'll find somebody else who does because I like how I play. I'm satisfied. I'm not ever complacent. But I think I play the trumpet pretty well. I think I'm a decent musician. Um, and I guess even more importantly than that, my, my identity doesn't rest on that. So if someone comes up to me and says, dude, you suck. At 25, that would have thrown me for a huge loop. I mean, it's not a good thing for anybody to be saying in general. I know where you're headed with the story, yeah. but just that's like, that, sh that should be something all of us would be like, that's not great to hear. No, no, of course <laughs> it's terrible to hear. But, but, you know, I mean, if someone said that to me now, you, you are not good. I don't like your playing. Even if that someone was someone who's a respected person in, in our field, um, my response would be, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, of course it would hurt, but, you know, what would you do to fix it? Not a renunciation of me as a person. When I was 25, or even some at 30, that would have been a real issue. Yeah. I mean, there was something just yesterday morning, I was warming up, I, I practiced or two mornings ago, I practiced, I don't know, three and a half, four hours on Wednesday. A little puffy, a little swollen on Thursday morning. And it was taking me a little while to get it going. And it didn't sound great. And you made a joke, sounds great. And I laughed. Because, you know, I knew you were just messing with me and I thought it was funny. Seven, eight, ten years ago, uh, it would have thrown me for a huge loop. And I've learned... Um, that it's not an indictment on my character or, or even, you know, that as long as I'm happy and as long as most of the people that I play for are uh, happy um, and feel that they have grown in some way or appreciated the performance that I just had, then, you know, that's cool. Yeah. So it's good vibes all around. I have an interesting... What I think is an interesting sort of angle to, to continue part of this conversation, and it could take two different directions. Number one, your that perspective you hold, I would say you can hold uh, uniquely in your position 
because you have lots of different opportunities. But if you're somebody yeah. who wants to, say, play in an orchestra, you may not have that freedom to say you might need the, a committee or, you know, if you go play for like a like you want to get on a sub list or something like you may have to care what that person thinks of your playing if you want to have those particular opportunities. So, you know, having the ability to say, well, if I want those opportunities, maybe I don't have that same kind of freedom versus I want that freedom. So then I have to let some of those opportunities go. Right. I think both are true. Yeah. But then the third angle here is like for a student, you know, like a student, basically, if they come in and they play something and their teacher says, well, this needs to be you know, this needs to be better or this needs to sound this way or this needs to do that. Like a student probably shouldn't say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> My <But> students did. <laughs> you know, they'll probably listen to this and uh, they are snarky enough. Yeah, they might start joking they're, that way. Oh, they're going to drop that line on me. So thanks so much. Um, yeah. I'm sorry you feel that way, but uh, I like the way that I play. <laughs> um, you know, I think that um, a couple things. I, what we were talking about with holding goals in an open fist and not a closed fist. Mm. Yeah, if I want to go play in the Chicago Symphony, of course I need to have those those four trumpet players and probably the principal horn and principal trombone and principal tubist and maybe the conductor like my playing. Of course. Um, and the same thing in a school situation. If, if you are attending a school with... Uh, one particular teacher in charge of shepherding your development, then that person's voice needs to be very loud in the room. Hopefully that person is doing it in a way to help and not harm. Sure. Um, I, I, I very much, uh, because of my experiences, do not like punitive teaching. Um, I, I, I view it very much as a collaboration and as a, uh, I am, I'm certainly a strong personality, but I, I try very hard to shepherd my students in a sense. I'm, I ask a lot of questions in my lessons and I'm very effusive with my praise whenever I possibly can be because I, I push them hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they need to be, uh, when you're in that position or you're in a, you know, you're a freelancer and you're trying to get more work with institution X, Y, or Z, then yes, absolutely. Uh, you can't be so closed-minded. I, when I let me let me um, kind of clarify, it's not that I'm not going to adapt. You know, I mean, this week, if you had said, uh, Jesse, I need you to provide a little more on the third <laughs> yeah. trumpet, then absolutely. Yeah. It's I'm, the I'm basically the, the way that dictates this, the nature of the that's right. of the relationship. What what I what I what I meant by that more than I'm not going to move my art my artistic output is I'm not going to let anyone else dictate my value as a person. Sure. Or even as a musician, based on what could be an innocuous comment, most of the time that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, versus, or even something that maybe is not quite so kind. Um, I'm going to do what is asked of me by a conductor or by a colleague or by a boss. Certainly, 100%. I mean, in an extreme case, you do have the choice to not. <laughs> you just may not get called back or you may not keep your yeah. job. Although, you know what I mean? You, you have to be willing to pay that price if yeah, that's the case. If, if, if you, if, yeah. So, 
it's obviously what we're talking about here is a balance. That's kind of why I wanted to bring it up is and and your clarification as well as well sort of said, you know, yep. it's it's so much more about the identity of saying that people can't make you feel worse about yourself as a person through the way that they make yeah. comment about what you do or the value that you their perceived, you know, what they think of your value of a player or whatever. The uh, deity of performance is a very, very fickle and awful deity. And, you know, I use that word very intentionally because when you think about it, when you're, when you're spending your life trying to achieve X or Y or Z, it might be playing trumpet or gymnastics or what have you. Um, you're spending 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week in one way or another, thinking about playing the trumpet, playing the trumpet, practicing, studying scores, uh, writing emails to further your business, uh, sending in resumes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is very easy to turn it into this is who I am, and that is poison. And that's really what I meant more than anything, sure. is that I am, you, you could tell me I'm a bad trumpet player, and I'd say, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. And obviously that would be the end of our functional relationship, and that's, you know, th that would be a bummer, but that... That's that's a line that I have learned the hard way to draw in the sand. Um, and I hope that it makes me a better teacher uh, because so often students, what they're struggling with, yes, the lens is performance on the trumpet. But the job of a teacher is much more than that. You have a lot of hats that you need to wear on a regular basis. And if you're doing your job right, the students should be open to saying, I'm struggling with this or that or the other thing. And, the, and that might come about because they say, I didn't get to half my assignments this week. Okay, well, would you mind sharing why? And then before you know it, they're tearing up. Or, okay, something's going on. Sure, sure. Let's back off of Schlossberg. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the appropriate time. And, and that's when the, the, that teacher-student relationship is... Uh, I view that as an opportunity to instill confidence in my young pupils as a growing adult and as a person of value that they know that I view them far more as a person than just somebody who puts compressed air through a tube. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to necessarily try to sum up what you've just said for... Um, <laughs> Because it's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a deep thing. It's hard to do this and it's un, unwise to do so, I think, because you, as you would make something more succinct, you lose nuance. But it sounds like to me, you, the distinction you're making is about, is about, you know, value and identity versus playing, right? And so basically, no matter what anybody says to you, you've grown to a place where you feel like you can hold your own and say like, well... I don't feel any less of a person or any less of that I provide value because of the comment you've given me. Then there's also, depending on who gives you the comment, you may say, I'm sorry you feel that way, but if you don't want their feedback, you're not going to ask them. But then there may be some people who you have specifically said, I want your feedback. Mm -hmm. So when they say, this isn't great, you're going to be like, okay, how do we work to fix this? And that's someone that you trust and that's you're seeking their yeah. guidance. So really the distinction of like how you would respond comes in is, do you want their feedback or not? It seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the other side of that coin is that I'm always learning. My colleagues across the country, including what you're doing, it's inspiring. And I don't say that to, to 
suck up or or to to anything like that. I learn every day. I learn from amazing performers, amazing teachers. My colleagues at UCF are awesome teachers. It's inspiring to watch them work. It really is. And I think as kind of a corollary corollary to being secure in my own identity, uh, that I don't, I don't, I can be free to truly and effusively praise what is great and to freely steal. Mm, <laughs> you know, I yeah. want to learn. I want to learn. I mean, just uh, right before this, you and I were talking about um, dynamics and how articulation plays into dynamics. There are a few things that you said that I'm going to think about, that mm. I'm going to experiment with, and I'm absolutely going to try and hammer my head around it because I think there's something there that I haven't considered before. Um, so that knowledge that you have becomes mine because I stole it because you did something cool and I, and I like it. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like, a light, a posture of lifelong learning for the sake and for the joy of doing the activity that I love to do. And I love to teach other people. And when your identity as a person is not messed up in what you do, then a whole world of creative possibilities and joy can come out of it and you can be yourself versus a robot. Um, yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's just so many thoughts that, that I had um, while you were talking. Sorry, I talked too long. No, dude, it's great. <laughs> it's great. I'm usually the one who's talking too much. So this is great. Um, you've, you've sort of, I know because I've talked to you before, I know you've sort of incorporated aspects of your performance anxiety mm. discussion into this. So do you want to sort of give a little bit more formalized, complete yeah. picture of the this talk that you give? Why? I mean, why the why do you care about why did you put this together? So Just kind of take us there. It's 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 interesting. Um I chose for my dissertation uh the topic of performance anxiety. And I chose it because I was a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> I needed help. Because I still hadn't, even at 30 years old, I still quite hadn't, I hadn't sussed this out, uh, separating my identity uh, from how I played. And so, of course, if you have a bad performance and your identity is wrapped up in it, that's terrible. So, sorry, so, I want to stop you for just a so, second, because you had said at 20, you had sort of had this realization, but you're still struggling with it at 30, Yeah. Right? So it's like clearly painting the picture that just because you know better doesn't mean it immediately makes things better. The tortoise wins the race, man. Yeah. So just, I just want to put that out there that I know myself and I know others who will struggle with this kind of thing. It's like, yes, I know what's right. I know what I should be thinking. I know that it should make everything better, and yet... It doesn't a hundred percent work every single, you know, sixty percent of the time. It works a hundred percent of the time. Right. Name that movie. Oh come on, dude! This is your this is your game. I it, don't know what is it. It's Anchorman. Oh no. Yeah. Milk was a bad choice. <laughs> All right. Continue with what you were saying. You're thirty and you did <laughs> I, your well, dissertation. Well, I was thirty, and and so I picked. I I decided to do. Um, and there was also a practical side of this, is because you know, who likes to talk talk about analyzing trumpet sonatas, trumpet players? Sure. Is there going to be a trumpet player on your job committee? No, not unless you're going to work at Indiana or UNT. And, you know, here's a uh, little secret hint, uh, future academics, your first job will not be at Indiana or UNT. 
unless you are a true freak. Yeah. It's most people, it's going to be at a small liberal arts college in the or a very rural area where you're going to be doing trumpet and, 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 and. Um, and so that was the practical side of it is like, I struggle with this. And it's something that I could talk about with a search committee because band directors are going to be interested in that and flute players are going to be interested in that. And, and it worked. It totally worked. Every single finalist interview I had, it, they were interested. Um, and they asked and they brought it up. Um, I've done the lecture uh, that I developed over 50 times, including at the International Trumpet Guild in 2019, uh, the National Trumpet Competition in, I believe it was 2018, might be 2019, uh, TMEA, um, GMEA, Georgia Music Educators, um, uh, several other conventions, um, and over 35 campuses across the country at this point. Uh, to my surprise, everybody was interested in it. Apparently, I hit on something. And so I, I um, took the tack of a, a DMA is not an original contribution to scholarship, by and large. It is a synthesis. It can be a synthesis of existing scholarship, whereas a PhD, which I do not have, is an original contribution to scholarship. Um so UT does DMAs. They also do PhDs, but I did not get one of those, thankfully, because um, <laughs> I still wanted to play the trumpet instead of read a book for five years. Um, so uh, I read dozens of behavioral psychology journals, kinesiology journals. I had a kinesiologist uh, at UT as my outside faculty member. Um and Wiff Rudd at Baylor was my other outside faculty member, and I picked Wiff because of his uh, wide array of experiences outside of academia. Uh, and I believe you have interviewed Wiff on this podcast. Yeah, forever ago, but yeah. Awesome, awesome interview. Um, and um, so I read behavioral psychology journals. It was like watching paint dry, man. I, I just like every word. I mean, like, you ever be in a group where several musicians are talking and they're talking about, you know, well, this agogic accent with the crescendo and nope. yeah, it's like, I'm not, that's not my story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and non-musicians, well, maybe that's the academic side of things talking. I don't know, but you know, non-musicians are like, what, what the heck are you talking about? Use yeah. English. Uh, it's very much the same in, in any field. So sure. I had to learn a new language effectively. And, um, I had to reread every sentence five or six times. It took me a very long time um, to read these journals and kind of synthesize what they were saying and their import for musicians. And a lot of it was dealing with athletics because there's a lot of money in athletics. There's not music. Uh, I also did some music specific things, but I was also very interested in athletics because I, I enjoy athletics as well. I'm a weekend warrior, but it is one of my hobbies. Um, and so I, it, I enjoyed seeing what unlocked top performance and what blocked top performance, even though the, stu the students or even some cases professionals were ready for top peak performance. Um, I also looked at some music things, but I didn't principally do that. Uh, and that was intentional also because I did not want to risk bad form. Um, when we see a golfer duff a shot, it's not traumatic for us as musicians. 
And I knew that would be my principal audience. When we see a trumpet player biff a high C in a concert, uh, trumpet players, uh, you know, most of them will go, yeah. oh, been, been there. Been there. Yeah. And it's not fun. So I avoided that. Um, and I put it into a typical lecture recital format, uh, which is what UT had to do. So we played for half an hour, le lectured for half an hour, and then I expanded that half an hour over time to an hour-long lecture that I could put anywhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half, depending on how much time I had. And I intentionally designed it with as much humor as I possibly could. So, I mean, if you know me uh, or if we're friends on Facebook, half the stuff that I share are stupid jokes and, you know, funny things that mean nothing. Um, and I intentionally put that into the format because it's such a touchy subject. So, you know, I had a, a pumpkin. It's uh, it's nausea is one of the symptoms. And I had a pumpkin and in my slide that all the pumpkin guts had been scooped out and were sitting in front of the pumpkin. And, and it was a line, the pumpkin doesn't feel good, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, you know, stupid jokes. Um, but the last... Uh, and. So it's designed, basically, I spent about half the time discussing what causes performance anxiety. Um, and half the time, about a quarter of the time, talking about how to teach in a way to avoid that, which I can expand if, it, if it's like TMEA or something. I spent a lot of time on how to teach to avoid instilling performance anxiety. And yes, you can absolutely instill performance anxiety in your students as a teacher if you don't know what you're doing. Um, or, and then half the remaining time on how to perform. And so if I'm at a school that there's a lot of graduate students, I obviously I'll spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of modulated at this point. I mean, I've done the lecture so many times that I can pull it up and do it whenever, wherever, without really looking at it. Um, it's It's been a good thing and it's really helped me and it's really helped my students. Yeah, that's great. I mean... I think it's super important. We were talking about why it's important is, you know, I obviously I care very deeply about structures and practice organization because I believe that with those tools, we can establish good habits and get better forever. But if you have blocks, you won't have access to that skill mm -hmm. that you've developed. And so it's, you know, training your mind the way I, I talked about it from a book that's down there. Uh, called with winning in mind he just talks about developing healthy self-image like being mm. able to see yourself as someone who can be a good performer who will be able to have successful outcomes things like that it's very much tied into we got to get our mind right to be good performers or to be i wouldn't even say good just to be able to perform at the ability that we have but, and i think that we need to even i would even clarify that um i would not say at the ability that we have 85 percent is just fine you, well, you just, know what you I just, mean, though, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know what you mean. I just, I want to put that out there because as a student, you and I listen to CDs. Now they don't do CDs anymore. That's for old people, you know, but uh, we got these streaming things now and everything sounds so perfect. But this is also not at the ability that they have, right? Right. That's, that's, this is something that's interesting to me, but we listen to that and we think that's what that person can do, but it's not like a recording you can take as many takes as you want. Well, that, that's what I mean. It's yeah. a lie. It's right. a lie. Yeah. Which I is mean, great. We're trying to present the music. It's not about the, it's presenting the piece the way it's supposed to be. But to me, the goal I'm after is like, how do we help somebody realize their potential in a performance of like what they're capable of, you know? And, and, and then, and this is something we were just, we've talked about sort of 
throughout and letting that be okay. Just letting like saying, with- this is what I'm capable of right now. I worked hard. I'm proud of the result. I will continue to work hard. I will hopefully see more and more, you know, growth over time. But it's like the best that I can do is good enough for me right now. What you're describing is an optimum performance. Yeah. Um, I also read several common books that a lot of performers have read. Don Green was chief among them. Uh, and he describes it as an optimum performance. And it, it, for me, I think of, uh, I always tell myself, if I'm super prepared, go out and hit a single. Singles win ball games. Yeah. Lots of singles. Stack successes. And your definition of what is a single will change as you get better. Absolutely. But I never, I might say if I'm super prepared and very confident, go hit a double. I think I've said go hit a triple like once in the last 10 years. I have never once said hit a home run. Never. Mm. Because when you shoot for a peak performance, in my experience, very often the pressure becomes very, very great and you end up at a suboptimal level. You shoot for an optimal and peak happens. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. I'm, I'm finding the same kind of thing is like if I just focus on right now, I, it's like I understand the components of how to play the trumpet where things work because I've built that into my practice. So instead of thinking, how do I have this optimal performance? I just think to myself, if right now I just do the things I need to do from a production standpoint, from a musical standpoint that say, if I did that, it would result in what I want right now. If I just did that for the whole entire thing, by the time I hit the end of the performance, I would have ideally played everything the way I wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. And so it's so much more about like just staying in the moment and and focus, really. That's the biggest thing is can you just continue to focus at that level and remember all the things that you've practiced and that you figured out? And can you just then do that throughout the whole entire thing? I mean, we to not to talk too much, but when we played Beethoven five last night, like pretty much all of Beethoven five went exactly the way I wanted it to go. But I can tell you, I was not thinking about movement four when we were in movement one. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I was thinking about, this is the thing. This is musically what it represents. I'm, I'm structure right here, or I'm harmony, or I'm just like, you know, which just articulation, we're just creating impact. And then you're trying, okay, I want to focus on creating that right now. And then that's it. Mm. And it, you know, being able to sort of, it's almost like you're talking about stringing singles together. It's like, you're just one phrase at a time. This is what I got to do now. Next phrase, I'll deal with that when I get there. That's right. And, and you, I mean, uh, I'm going over the talent code right now with my studio. And so that's kind of on my mind. It's, it's talking about, you know, wrapping myelin sheaths Mm -hmm. around those nerves and, uh, Professional performers, competent performers, um, in the presentation I use the analogy of a minefield. Um, A novice performer, you would be, uh, I would say to you, go demine this field. No, I don't have a map, and you don't know anything about mining. So when do you know when you mess up? Uh, (laughs) When you hit a mine. Game over, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, but if you had a PhD in mine diffusing and I had a map about where the mines were, when do you mess up? Yeah, you could make a mistake, but that's very unlikely. Yeah. You're going to make a mistake when you are so concentrating so heavily on one particular mine that you step backward and forget that there's another mine behind you. You're reinvesting in your education at the moment that you are performing. And that slows down your motor nerves. 
And that's when you make mistakes and you're trying to ensure success. And what you end up ensuring is a focus error. And uh, that reinvestment theory, it's called reinvestment theory, is something that I work on all the time, assuming the skill is there. Again, assuming you're qualified and you are prepared. You have to just be willing to roll the dice, yep. to let it fly, and let the chips... I, that, that's where the I'm human comes in. Because when you try to control those outcomes, or when you're so worried, you know, to trying to ensure something works, that's when you make when a pro makes a mistake. Now, that also means that you need to have appropriate assignments. Agreed. I, I would not give a freshman the Shanes. I would not give a freshman the Tomasi. I don't care how good they are as a freshman. They're, they're doing Aria Converizioni. They're doing the uh, Concert Etude. Mm -hmm. They might get to Artunian, Canon. Um, it weighs in Sonata maybe for a sophomore, junior, Halsey, Stevens. And, and it's not that I don't want them to succeed. It's that I want their their assignments to be appropriate difficulty, maybe 5% out of their reach. So that that growth will help them, that, that, that difficulty, that struggle will help them to grow rather than crush them. I yeah. use the analogy all the time. If you had somebody who's four foot three and 60 pounds dripping wet and you put a 400 pound bench rack over them, they're not going to get stronger. They're going to break. Yeah. And so, yeah, assuming that the assignment is appropriate. You're qualified, you're prepared, and you need to embrace the fact that you're human, both because you're going to make mistakes and because people don't want to hear robots play. When you start playing in a way that is free and, and embraces that humanity without being maybe reckless, but free, that's attractive because people see confidence when you're sitting there going, oh, I don't want to make a mistake uh, that people know. Yeah. They know. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go over um, when I worked with one of your students in that master class because, you know, the talent code talks about chunking. Yep. And we did that in that we were working on Mahler 5. And it's just, I, I kind of want to point to, and I, I, well, there's two reasons I want to tell this. One, because it's like an application of what we're talking about with the result that we're talking about, which I'll get to in a second. But also, I'm kind of curious for like sort of a follow-up like mm. just what what has been the result of that. But basically what we did is this student was struggling to play through Mahler 5. There was all of this baggage playing the opening of Mahler 5 of it's loud, it's difficult, I don't have that kind of strength, all that kind of stuff, right? Which many people can identify with. So what we did is we made the assignment proper in that particular instance is we just said, okay, here's phrase one, here's phrase two, and here's phrase three. And we're going to build a plan for each one of these. And then you're going to, we're only going to play those phrases though, so that you're fresh when you play that. And so we take that difficult element out of the equation. And then when we put it back together, um, your student made an interesting comment that is something I've always believed in my own playing, but it was cool to hear somebody else say, as they said, when I played Mahler 5 this time, it was like I just played phrase one, and then I played phrase two, and then I played phrase three. It wasn't like I have all of Mahler 5, but rather I was just focused on one phrase at a time. Kind of what we're speaking to, hitting a single, rather than trying to hit a home run and think of how am I going to get through this. It's, well, I'll just get through the first phrase, 
and then we'll deal with the next one as we go. Bingo. And, and it wasn't, it was interesting to see that there was a lot of success in these smaller phrases. And when we went back to the full excerpt, you could almost see a flip back into that baggage that existed. So then it would just take tons of repetition in that successful version, I think, to build that up. Um, but it's kind of what we're talking about here. You're like more focused on the uh, much smaller picture and just focusing, what can I do right here in this phrase? And then I'll move on to the next one. And if I just do that consistently, at some point I'll reach the end of my recital, right? You know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then, so you did it. But I'm curious for you what what some, like, what just kind of what has some follow up on that um, with this student is like, has it been, has it continued? Has the student sort of fallen back into some, you know, like this is hard. I'm just curious for like a Mahler five type situation. That, that particular student, um, I am, I want to start with this. Uh, I am so excited for her future career. There's going to be a time and soon that she will cease calling me Dr. Cook and I will be Jesse because we're going to be colleagues. It's coming. I'm excited for her. Um, and I don't mind if she hears it because she needs that confidence because she also was a student that worked really, really hard without a ton of payoff and had a lot of baggage. As a result, her ears were ahead of her chops. But the chops, I mean, like, I don't want to denigrate the physical strength building that needs to come into it, but it's, it's just basically time and the mm -hmm. correct input. And the chops will... The human body is only going to work a certain number of ways. And if you put in the right stimulus, it's going to work that way. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, she has continued to grow. Uh, and I'm super proud of her. Uh, she can do things, uh, Mahler among them, that she couldn't do six months ago. That's um, so cool. It's very cool. You know, and I think that leads to an interesting kind of uh, point in uh, going back to this uh, confidence thing and identity thing that we were discussing earlier, there comes a point, I mentioned to you several points in my journey that I hit a new level. One of them was 25, one of them was 29, one was 31, and one was 34. Where I can, you know, famous last words, knock on wood, but <laughs> I can pretty much pick up the trumpet now and know it's going to sound good. Uh, that was not the case at 33 even. And that's after an age that many people are either out of music uh, or then doing it as a hobby or um, are full-time musicians of one stripe or another. It, it came, it was hard for me. I, I started life as what I thought was a prodigy. There was a long road in front of that. And that question of confidence uh, that that this student that you're kind of referencing that used chunking to great effect. Um, there's a point in everyone's journey, and and she mentioned to me, and I don't think she'd mind me sharing it. She said, "It's so weird. I play now, and people like it." <laughs> and I said, "I want you to remember that feeling, because that's what it's going to be for most of the rest of your life, and you can just take for granted that you have done the work, and you are going to reap the fruit of that." And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. There was a point in my own journey at 34, I was desperately trying to land a full-time academic job. I was very close. Um, and I was an adjunct at the school in Oklahoma. And uh, I planned this crazy recital that had the Antile and the Awaysen Sonata and several other smaller pieces that weren't easy. 
uh rondo for life he was on there and that was the easiest one it was an hour and 12 minutes with the intermission way too long never do that um and the first recital i did was a hot mess and i planned i think it was seven recitals in five states over seven days yeah circus it was dumb and I made no money. I ended up losing 800 bucks because I traveled with my pianist and paid him plus the hotels so over $1,000. But I was just trying to get good recordings sure. on my website. So, I mean, and, but what came out of it? That first recital, I was nervous. Didn't, uh, the second was okay, better. It was in Mississippi. So I traveled from Oklahoma to, no, Alabama. Oklahoma to Alabama, then Mississippi, then Louisiana, then Texas, then different part in Oklahoma. Uh, our, we went through Arkansas in there. I mean, and by the time I got to the last recital, one of, uh, she has since become a very good friend of mine. She was the TA at OU. She said, she walked up to me. She said, how are you doing that? You just blew some warm air in the instrument and you went out and played and it was amazing. And the recital was ridiculously hard. And I kind of looked at her and I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I just did it. But what I know now is that that repetition, positive repetition over time convinced me and gave me the confidence that I could expect a good result. And the fruit of that, after that, like I slept for a week, right? And then after I slept for that week, after that, um, started putting the recordings up and sending them to, you know, when college jobs came open and I realized Jesse, if you can do that, then why are you scared of pictures at an exhibition? This is so easy in comparison. Yeah. And it, that's an important step in the development of, of, of a young player's confidence or of any player's confidence is to realize, look, I've cleared a bar of 140%. Why am I worried about 95? And that's when you can say, I'm going to stack singles. But your single to someone who hasn't done the work looks like a home run, but it's really just a single. Yeah. It's an interesting, just, yeah. Interesting point too. I, I, I'll throw in the, I'll, this will be the last thing I say about it and then we'll kind of wrap up here, but sure. Um, you know, I, I had confidence when I was younger and I think a lot of it came, there were two reasons why. Number one, I had teachers who, but like they instilled confidence. They were like, mm. you're doing a lot of great things. Like you're, you're moving along in your career, you know, that would sound good and in, in concerts and things like that. And they'd be like, you're right on track or whatever. And the other thing is, is I just had this, like, there's this, I just told myself, there's like no way that there's no reason that you can't be successful. Right. But like from a, from, but like blind, right. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like I, I was preparing in such a way that it was like, I know what's going on. It was just like, I just totally have this belief that I can will myself into this thing. Well, it, it sort of worked, right? Like, oh. I mean, I do have a, a, a job, uh, a salaried position. There's a lot of people who don't have that, but I'm not in the particular job that I told myself that I was going to have, right? And what's interesting is now there's a level of confidence I've developed through the process of practicing, you know, like talent code type myelin sheath, you know, just for do, being really diligent. There's a level of confidence I've built 
where it's kind of what you're saying. It's like I'm less concerned with the outside opinions of others is because I just feel like I so much more deeply understand what I'm doing. Yeah. And I have, as a result, like I actually have confidence that I can expect the result that I want. Maybe not 100%. But it's not going to be that far off of it because of the because and that's from experience. Like, yep. it's actually I've I've gained enough perspective from the length of time I've been working on this now that I've had just a number of experiences in a row that are like even if it's not totally like on point, like you know we're high nineties. This is like what we're shooting for is like high nineties, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of an interesting distinction between the two. It's like I was like between saying. I'm going to I'm going to will myself to be successful versus like I've done the things necessary to know that I can produce sound the way I want to and if I just keep applying myself to different things good results will happen. Right, and I think that the the really uh neat thing about the way you just described the the latter choice there. Do you notice how you shifted the identity without even thinking about it? I'm going to will myself to be successful right, versus right. I'm going to do these things. So, so you shifted to things and it ceased to be about Ryan. Yeah. Things being deliberate practice, right? Like, right. And, and successful yeah. performances. Yeah. And that way, when, not if you miss the mark, and we all will, I'm qualified, I'm prepared, and I'm human. When you miss the mark, your reactions, first of all, your aversion, we, none of us want to play badly right? Your aversion will go to, okay, what did I put in? What happened? Not why am I a failure? And where young trumpet players, young musicians, so often where I went, I had every expectation as a, as a young person, just like you. And I, yes, I was just as blind. And yeah, I had natural ability, but I had so many failures around the, along the way. Uh, I didn't have that great teaching as a, at a young age. Um, that the scarring happened, the psychological scarring, and, and I started expecting failure and going back at it like just masochism because I couldn't give up and I couldn't stop. And uh, when you have good teaching, when you have a reasonable expectation of success, that when you fail, when all those things are in place and you fail, you go back to, okay, what went wrong? not why am I wrong? Sure. No. And, and it's, it's so it's important. It's the most important distinction we could possibly make, I think. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and the flip side of that is what went right versus why am I so right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, and I think almost, that's almost more deadly. Uh, it's, it's almost more psychologically damaging is when you have, when you when your identity is wrapped up in what you do, two things are going to happen. Number one you're going to have uh, failure most of the time and be miserable. Or worse, you're going to succeed and be a jerk. Yeah, right. It's back to what, we, what you right. said at the very beginning. The, yeah, yeah but, so it's, it's, it's just that, that, that has really kind of been, I, I mean, it sounds so corny to say, you know, my mantra or life mission in my job, but it really does boil down to that. I, I push my students hard because I want them to be successful. I want to give them the tools that they need to thrive as entrepreneurial young musicians, either in a symphony or 
behind a recording desk or in a band director chair or what have you. Um, but I want them to know more than anything that you are not what you do and you need to remember that. Um, and when they do, when, when a performer is doing that and performing freely, man, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's so much fun. It's like this group kind of just riff that, that can happen in an orchestra or, or a chamber ensemble or between a, uh, a soloist and a, and an, um, a collaborative pianist or, you know, in a comedy club, it, it becomes this communal shared human experience. It's a beautiful thing to hold, behold. And I think that it's something that as artists, we, with all the difficulties we have, it is uh, a unique privilege that we have to be able to move people in that way. But only if we don't talk about, make it about us. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. If somebody is interested in like taking a lesson or checking out more about the studio at UCF, or if they want to have questions about things that they're struggling with, how will people get a hold of you? Uh, it's jesse, J-E-S-S-E dot cook at UCF dot edu. Um, I, I also mentioned Palisade Trumpet Collective. I want to give a shout out to uh, that ensemble. It's um, we got some fun stuff planned for the next year and, uh, we're doing a tour through Florida in the spring this, this year. Um, I'm going to be up in, uh, Wisconsin in June, early June. Uh, and I can't announce anything past that, but we got some good plans. Um, and, uh, also, you know, my own website, jessepatrickcook.com. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to hear from any students, uh, that are listening to this, um, the beautiful and the sad thing about when I share this story with people is that it's, it's so common. Yeah. It, it, you know, you are not alone, young brass player. Those, those feelings that you have, those identity questions that you have, uh, it's, it's far more common than you think. And, you know, um, if you break a wrist, for example, you can't play the trumpet but you can break your psyche too. And when you do that, you can't play the trumpet. <laughs> you, right. you, and, and there shouldn't be any more shame in saying that I've, I've, I've got some, some stuff that I need to deal with right now. Yeah. So yeah, give me a shout. I'd be happy to talk You're on to you. on social media as well, right? Yep. Uh, Facebook and Instagram. I guess it's the old man platforms at this point. I'm, I'm not <laughs> on TikTok or anything like that. My students are on TikTok. Um, and yeah, I mean, most of the stuff I share on Facebook is stuff being proud about my kids, uh, my, my actual physical children, or uh, about the UCF Trumpet Studio and the awesome work that those young people are doing. Or, you know, very often I'm a huge Packer fan, so stuff about football or just dumb jokes. There you go. It's good, good, good jokes are funny. Yeah. Uh, so you can check them out uh, at any of those places. Um and yeah, reach out. Uh, he's given so much here already, but it sounds like he is even more willing to uh, share some of his thoughts if you have even more specific questions. So do that if it uh, feel if you feel like you should do that. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that'snotspit.com or That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, had any feelings at all, uh, consider giving the podcast a rating and a review on iTunes and don't forget to share this episode on social media so other people can find the episode as well Jesse thank you one more time for being willing to share so much and giving me your time like I, I know that I learned a lot it's always great to, to sort of 
you know, get to know people more, but uh, I'm glad other people got to hear part of your story and, and, and be encouraged by you as well. Thanks a ton, Ryan. Uh, this is a big honor for me. Yeah. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.